Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 10 of Multiple Calls. I'm Scott Hewlett. I want to start by thanking everyone for their patience and understanding. There's been a bit of a lag between the last episode and this one. I've been handling some personal and family issues, and I didn't want to rush the next episode out just to keep pace. Literally and figuratively, spinning plates takes practice and perseverance, and the self-awareness that if you push the limit of your physical and mental ability too far, that the plates you break could be costly or irreplaceable. Health, family, unity, finances, critical job skills, friendships, and the responsibilities we choose to take on. One person can do a lot, but a lot isn't everything. Balancing too many things precariously or balancing what is manageable extremely well have very different longevities. This mindset takes a makeup of practicality, passion, adaptability, and acceptance, but the workload is still limited. If you want to do more, you need others. This increases efficiency, productivity, success, and joy at the cost of adding interpersonal dynamics to the mix. This is the big picture that leaders see and address so well. My guest this episode embodies and embraces the journey of leadership. We discuss work ethic, mentors, family, how sports and competition are synonymous with firefighting, and the experience of losing a crew member. He is instructed in the areas of live fire, driving, and mental health, and stands beside our membership on the Honor Guard, the Benevolent Committee, and handling WSIB cases. It's a privilege to call him a friend and my captain. Here's my discussion with Rob Sine. Hey, Rob. Hey, Scott. How's it going? Good, yeah? Good, good. So we worked a shift last night. Yes. It wasn't too bad. No, it was okay. It was yeah. Good day. A couple calls late, but uh, we got a little bit of downtime. Yeah, important. And, and uh, on to the second coffee. <laughs> you <So>. are. <laughs> this is my first. Oh, is it? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so we should be able to make it for a couple hours and stay cognizant and clear. You got me for 20 minutes. Okay. All right. I'll make the best of it. So uh, I was actually talking to uh, one of our crew last night about how we came up and how our work ethic was established uh, early on. Let's start with that. When did you start working? And uh, what jobs did you do before the fire service? <laughs> yeah, I was uh, I was working, I don't know, I was like 12 or 13, uh, cutting lawns and snowblowing driveways. <laughs> it sounds bizarre. And no, I didn't buy the snowblower. It was, <laughs> my parents had one, so entrepreneurial enough that uh, you start to see a little bit of an opportunity and then a little bit of freedom by gaining some money and then it kind of went from there so full-time jobs it was like 16 17 that I was into the workforce kind of deal and a bit of a grind I guess because you were I was still playing uh, high-level baseball and high-level hockey so some of those I could parlay if you will playing hockey I was instructing at goalie schools international goalie schools and that sort of thing so those would fill your summers and then, yeah, when you were in the actual real workforce all the way along, I had two jobs. I think I know how to work. Were you uh, pretty smart with the money you were making early on? Was that taught to you by your parents? Or were you sort of given free reign to make bad decisions initially and figure it out? Uh, <laughs> yeah, you had enough um, trivial little decisions that you'd spend stuff on inappropriately. But I always kind of was gearing it towards some sort of an education. And that was kind of our agreement, too, that... They were going to pay for a chunk of my education, but so was I. So it wasn't like, yeah, you can go out and do whatever you wanted. But it did give you the freedom, but I was putting money away. And older siblings, um, my sister for sure, she was working. She was telling me to put my money away. So. How many brothers and sisters? 
Uh, one sister, one brother. Sisters in between Mike and I. And uh, you have a lot of family in the fire service. I do. So <laughs> run, run down that list for me. <laughs> uh, so my sister's husband, uh, he's on Richmond Hill. Um, and my brother-in-law, he's on the fire service as well. He, ironically, was kind of searching for a career at 19 years old. And we still had the ride-along program. So I brought him one day, put him through his paces. He went in the tower with us, like way above and beyond any NFPA regulation that we would have now. <laughs> we had probably one of the hottest burns you could imagine. Like, yeah, it was <laughs> pretty eye-opening for him. But he got hooked and followed my path. And so it was pretty cool to develop him in a way and, and see the trials and tribulations. He got on as a volunteer and helped him with the interviews and all those sorts of things. And then he eventually got hired, went to his graduation. And so it's pretty cool. He's on our shift too. So it's easy to line up. So oh, nice. Yeah. But your dad and your brother. Yeah. The close side of the family. Yeah. That my dad was 47 years in the service. So he was 17 years as a, as a firefighter tenant at the time. That's what they called it. Um, then he made a switch up this way into the GTA to the OFM. And then eventually was a fire chief for another 22 years. So he'd always said that he had three different careers. So I kind of believe it. I kind of see that. Um, and that kept him going in different avenues for that length of time. And he still loved his job to the day that he left. So pretty fortunate to, to have that surrounding and see, you know, that kind of life. And then my brother got on. Yeah. So for people that don't know him and I were in the same hire. Yeah. He got on just a few years before you. Yeah. Yeah. So it's pretty ironic that I knew who you were just from Mike's class alone, but seeing your graduation was, was pretty riveting too. You guys were demoing the helmet thermal imaging cameras. And it was a live demonstration through the command post. You guys did a scenario. Like I remember every little sequence of the whole thing. So pretty influential because I, I was 17 at the time and kind of searching around for different avenues as to what I was going to do. Like, why wouldn't I do this? But <laughs> now you look at it, it's like, why wouldn't you? But there was different factors there where I was thinking of police, just a different emergency service. But I was definitely influenced by one of my hockey coaches as well. But it was actually him that said, well, why wouldn't you consider the fire service like your, your father, right? And mm -hmm. like, okay, yeah. Because he was on police, was he? The the hockey coach yeah. was. Yeah, so he, we were 13, 12, 13 at the time. And he was with OPP and he took us to their detachment, the whole team. So we had a whole day there with them, did a tour. We had to do a scenario, each one of us. It was, it was wild, it was a lot of fun. So... You had a screen in front of you, you had a, a gun on your belt, and they ran you through one by one. Nobody knew what you were getting into, so you had to do a traffic stop, and the guy would get out with, with a gun or with a, without, so you had to make the call as to whether you were going to shoot or not kind of thing. I didn't realize that that was available, because I know it's available now. I didn't know that tech has been around that long, that oh. VR interactive. Yeah. That's amazing. It was, and it was older school, right? It was a projection screen or whatever it was, but... It was pretty engaging, right, for all of us to go through that. And I was like, wow, this is this is really neat. So I approached him later and was really considering the the police service. I, I mean, I was kind of thinking of different things and had lots of talks. And, and then he said, why don't you consider the fire service like, like your father was? And I was like, okay, yeah. So And the rest is history. I mean, my dad talked about it 
driving all over southern Ontario for baseball or hockey and he just would kind of put it out there but he never never pushed it on me at all right yeah so you were just encouraged to do what you wanted to do yeah but he did gently expose you to yeah possibility not in a direct way like we knew what dad did and he was a lot of the times the on-call chief as the deputy before he became the chief so oftentimes like a volunteer the phone would ring and he would have to leave because it was a major event i knew that if he left the odds were I would see him on the 11 o'clock news doing the speech for whatever event had occurred. I can re- recall a time, again, we were playing baseball in the middle of summer, and we were coming back from somewhere down in the city, and they called him. And he's like, do you want to go to the scene? And I was like, yeah. Heck yes. I, I, I don't really have a choice. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so we went, and it was they were constructing the 407. And it was a uh, the dump truck had had its back up and flipped over, so it was a big kind of extrication involved. And I was on the outskirts, so I couldn't really s- understand what was going on. I knew where we were, and my dad had meandered down to talk to them and kind of see if they needed anything, this sort of thing. But so those were events where I definitely remember the fire service or being in that arena, right, and kind of seeing it all on, unfold. So it's pretty neat. So almost away from the sort of the fantasy version that you may have in your head of like not only what the media portrays it as, but then what you think your dad's doing and then sort of seeing it play out in real time. This is what an actual response looks like. Yes, yes. And even further to that, when we were younger, when he was with the the OFM, he would bring a, a truck home, the training truck home. So it was all wonderful in the neighborhood. You imagine a giant fire truck outside of your house for overnight because he was taking it somewhere to train. So you saw that end of it. And then he, he took me once to uh, back home where, where I was born because they were putting on an extrication demonstration. And I rode with him for four hours in the, in the captain seat, if you will. In this foreshadowing yeah right <laughs> in this fire truck all the way down so i i got to visit family because we were down there but he was putting on uh, an event with this particular apparatus so it was really neat to see that and then the synergy wraps itself back to me going to the fire college as a volunteer and there was this truck i was like oh my gosh and i the battery died on it when i was using it <laughs> it was awesome it's like we had such a good run, and it was right there, right? <laughs> Did you bark at him the whole way like you bark at me when I'm driving for you? <laughs> right. I had a huge pillow with me. It wasn't very, you know, it was a, a bumpy seat. I was asleep. Like He would tell a story well. He, you know, I've seen southern Ontario, and I think everything's 10 minutes away because I'm asleep. <laughs> sleep constantly, right? So, wow, we're here. Yeah. So that hasn't changed on the way to calls either. I, exactly. You think all the responses are 30 seconds That's long. <laughs> Exactly. You're a really good driver. Yeah. Man, that was quick. <laughs> that was quick. Uh, so with all that exposure to fire, had you thought about police more just to sort of blaze your own trail and not do exactly what your dad was doing? Was that a thought or were you just sort of being exposed to different emergency services? And Yeah, it's that's hard to tell. I don't know if the... Yeah, um, I knew about the fire before the police interaction. My mom likes the criminal end of things. She likes, you know, the criminal mind kind of stuff. So I don't know if I would pick some of that up. I would say I would pick uh, some of that up from her. I mean, 
even right up to this day, I was accepted to go to university for criminology. And that's kind of, I was like, oh, maybe, maybe not. And I was glad I held off doing what I, obviously it was a great job. And I think I would have been, been fine there too. But both of those kind of were in my scope for sure. So. With um, her obviously comfort level with so many people in emergency services, I'm sure, you know, as parents, I mean, sure, even your dad, you have this concerns for your kids because you know the dangers that are involved. But did she ever express, you know, after the fact that, She's glad you're on fire and not carrying a gun. Um, he had to compare the dangers. I think she's just proud that we're we're on the service too, um, but she worries about us just the same. She knows that there's inherent dangers, and you look back to me growing up. My dad still has a picture of him rescuing somebody out of a window. He has the paper clipping, and he's passed out, handing this kid off. The kid had ripped his face piece off in the fire, and so my dad got him to the window and got overcome by it all and you know was rewarded all that good stuff so I could see that and then I could see of course my mom's fear as well so which is rightfully so because you're seeing it right in front of you so that's the reality yeah yeah for sure so what was your path to getting hired you started out as a volley yeah I was uh 20 years old applied to the same volunteer department where where my brother was too and he had just got on the career department. The chiefs at the time knew knew who my dad was, of course, and knew knew Mike as well. But I look back at it, and they they gave me a pretty good break, and they were really good with me. But I was showing, you know, the maturity and that sort of thing that I was willing to handle this. And ultimately, you're wanting to get on full time. But that was I was hooked. I really was hooked when uh, when that started. The training started. We got to go to the fire college. Like they did a really good job with us, and we would go commit to the weekends. And it was months of of doing that, and then leading into the fire college. So we were prepared with our skills. Did a couple weekends of training there and evolutions up there. So knowing that, and then you finally got your pager. It was like, wow, this is it. This is really where I want to be. So then my focus even further to that turned to, to going to college, to the pre-service program. Like everybody else does, you, you're right, and you may not get in. And so it worked out. I wasn't too far out of the, the volunteer, getting a pager, uh, getting trained up, that I was quick to go to Humber thereafter. And working two jobs. Working two jobs, playing junior hockey, yeah. Taking courses. <laughs> Taking courses, yeah. <laughs> a partridge in a pear tree. Yeah. So that's all good stuff. But that was probably seen by your volley crews, right, and your captains, that you were the sponge mentality. Yes. You're committed, so then they're just, you're also eager to feed you. And they were, because they had um, a municipality with three smaller departments, and we did all our training together. So I had one friend of mine, on a career now as well but he went to Humber uh, he was basically a year ahead of me for everything he got hired a year ahead of me all of those things so I was kind of seeing what he was doing and following those footsteps at the same time as our training was going on which at the start was a gong show because I look back at it I soaked myself with with a hose incorrectly once we were just in the infancy of our training I was like oh my gosh what am I doing here but then fast forward after Humber after all the courses, everything I had taken. I remember going to a call and the guy that was in my class, he turned around, he's like, holy cow, you've come a long, long way. And I was like, yeah, we're putting gear on, I'm throwing ladders, I'm doing the job. 
not the job, not running calls, but you're training every single day. And he was at a different stage in his life. He was, you know, an older gentleman, but all those guys, even the, uh, the older guys that, that were in my recruitment, they all kind of took me under their wing. And I remember them really looking out for me and we went to the fire college. So super positive that way. And they all knew, you know, what I was kind of after, but I was full in, full in raising money. Like it was a whole different world. We didn't have all the luxuries that we do with the full-time service. I mean, we had a two-stroke hydraulic uh, system that we had to fundraise to get a proper set of, I was like, man, if the public only knew what we were dealing with here and what we were operating with, but we did it. And we had some really great other career guys there that mentored and developed and they took the job seriously and did an awesome job with us. And a lot of them are chiefs now. A lot of them are chiefs in other departments, so it's, it's kind of neat to see them. And I've met up with them again in other courses, and it's like, hey, you know, so we talk about the old days kind of thing, right? So, yeah. So this combination of having strictly volunteer firefighters and having some full-time involved in the volunteer service isn't necessarily a bad thing. You leaned on them, and, I mean, you had both volunteer captains and full-time volunteers that were captains too yeah but you leaned on them and and they knew what they were doing for sure when we had a big we had big events there we had a small tiny airfield in our area uh we had marinas in the area like we were dealing with some uh intense things and when stuff was going south and those guys were there it was like i'm holding on to that guy Mm. and you knew and don't, I'm giving all the credit to the volunteers too because there were some really, really good ones as well. Well, I just think it's a perfect synergy of oh. the experience and the knowledge that... Because yes. volleys are usually in rural areas. Yep. And obviously careers are most often in cities, urban, right? So yep. that perfect synergy of everybody bringing something to the table and you've got the perfect team. It was. Yeah, it really, really was. And you could you know, you could rely on a lot of great people there for sure. So were you trying to get on the same department as your brother? Were you trying everywhere? Yeah, trying all over. So the times were a little different. There wasn't kind of the applicant pool or the testing pool. You went wherever, whoever was hiring. We tried local to our area and it, you know, they were hiring such a small amount and just, you know, couldn't crack that you know, four guys they needed or whatever it would be. Out but of the hundreds of applicants, sometimes yeah, thousands. Yeah, thousands, right? Yeah. yeah, so that was a that was a job in itself, right? Save enough money up, go wherever you had to go, and then you start to get your resume beefed up enough that you're going to crack the line up to even get an interview. I remember one interview, I was like, holy cow. I It could have been over in 15 minutes. Right. <laughs> I walked out, right? But I got better at that and I got right down to the wire with a couple places. I know why they, they hired what they were hiring from within their own volunteer and that was fine. But I remembered the one chief said to me, he kind of blew us out of the water. We weren't expecting you, you know, we're going with our volunteers. And he said, if, if I didn't have to kind of lean to that, you were, you were here. And I was like, okay, that's good of him to give you that feedback. And I knew I was close then right you knew you were you were in the game it's a matter of time yeah it was so just, persistence perseverance yes were there doubts along the way did your dad and your brother encourage you to keep plugging away they did and then you start to doubt do i need to go back to school do i need to find something else am i gonna just keep doing what i'm doing here and and again i'm giving up all my vacation working two jobs day and night basically and giving up my vacation to get more and more and more on the resume i spent the summer almost at the fire college getting everything i could under the sun 
So then, yeah, you really do second guess, you, you know, you're making decent money and, but that's not, it wasn't a lifestyle to work that much. It was, it was an end game that you wanted. Right. So I was fortunate that it worked out, but again, you, you knew you were going to be in, in the circuit, but when was it going to happen? So there is definitely doubts and you got to keep positive. So. And you keep running into the same people doing all the same things that you are. Test after test. And I've had this conversation with some guys that have, I've helped now um, onto career departments just doing interview prep. And they're, they're banging their head off the wall. And it's, and it's like, okay, it's okay. You're all right. You're in this. And you got to add some extra things and, and beef up this a little bit. And eventually the levy will break. You're going to get your opportunity. And they got the same thing. They got offered multiple jobs. And so they can't be happier, right, that they finally finally cracked it but it takes that dedication to get it right and it's hard it's hard to maybe i was like that i don't know but different generation that they Same. they want something right this second and mm-hmm. it's not happening and it's like yeah you've got to persevere you really got to dig in here right yeah. so keep spending the money keep spending the time and then when you finally get on it'll be like you would have spent twice that sure yeah you look back at the the education end of it getting your eyes done the amount of stuff that you you know places that you applied for and but it's all worth it, it it's all it's all there you're you're on the the real deal right mm-hmm. so yeah it's pretty cool and then the real work begins and the real work begins. <laughs> so how long was that period of time then from deciding to try full-time and getting on how long was that uh it wasn't crazy but i was going hard at it so it was like two two and a half years yeah. as a volunteer and then yeah but two to five years seems to be the range right and uh, yeah and it depended on how much you wanted to engage and how I took advantage of every upper hand I had, and I, my dad was in my ear about that and said, if you're a volunteer, you can go to the fire college, and that's going to get you a leg up on this course, that course, and the other. And I was like, okay. And there wasn't a lot of, of a lineup for our guys to go, so they were they were more than willing to send me. And so that really, really helped. But, again, you got to take some of the advice and take advantage of the things that are in front of you. And I've said that same thing to a couple guys that are, are now on but they got on as uh, volunteers and I said, okay, now that you're there, you've got a whole arsenal of other things that you can get that people can't. So, And it seems uh, similarly uh, with me, like with my dad in the service, it was really important for me to, and I think important for him too, that uh, I got this under my own steam. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That I've said that, you know, and outside of fire life, uh, the, Fruits are pretty sweet if you put in the effort to to get it right. So if you reap those fruits, and well, how how much more reward can you have, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, it definitely. And you've gotta you've gotta make it right. Then that shows that you really wanted it, that you're really going for it, and you're serious about it. You just didn't get handed the job. Mm-hmm. So and I never wanted, I never wanted that to be the case. I never wanted to to look like that. That you were just oh well, yeah, your dad was a fire chief, so you got hired. Like, and your brother's here, so this is why this happened. Yeah, and I mean, those all help. Don't don't get me wrong; they help at the interview, and I, there's nothing wrong with the family no. and the fire service. I think it's great. It's a tradition. It's a history. Sure. Yeah, it's all amazing things. And you get extra. I, sure, I don't know now, but back a few years back, you get extra points in different cities for having, uh, you know, in the states, a brother on the department or a family member on the department. So, I think it's all a positive, and you understand the culture. But I'm sure for you, as it was for me too, 
equally, it's a double-edged sword. So equally as it can be beneficial, you also have a reputation to uphold and live up to. You do. So when you come in anonymously and you're the first one in your family, there's really nothing that you have to meet or exceed. You're right. But if you have people in the service that have shown up and yeah, you have to as well. Kind of open the door for you and it's like, okay, well, now you got you to gotta be switched on too. So, and as a people pleaser, I didn't want to disappoint either. Same. So, uh, yeah, right? You're not, you're not coming in there to, to mail it in. You're wanting to be the best that you can. So I think that, that just speaks for itself. So, yeah, it's all, it's all positive. And people that know that you have family in the service too that are on the job with you, you know, there's that part in the back of your mind that don't expect you're going to get different treatment because you've got people in the, in the department with you that are in your family or it's you have to cut your own cut your own way yeah you do and it and it's weird even though we are on the same department it's not like i had crossed paths with them Mm -hmm. my brother a ton over the years so you do realize that it is a big big department it's a big world there's lots of calls and you are gonna find your own way but it's nice to know that my brother didn't do anyone anybody wrong along the ways either, so it was pretty pretty quick for people to warm up to me as well, right? So. Right. Uh, but it must have been a bit of a icing on the cake to get on the same department. Definitely, yeah. It was it was pretty rewarding to all of that, and I was just telling you before we got going here the the badge, the logo, the fire demon. Um, my dad had it in a bunch of other patchwork that he would collect over the years because you go all over Southern Ontario training and, and there's enough firefighters around that said, oh, I know who your dad is. He trained us. So that patch, that uh, the logo that we had, I remember drawing it with my friend and we were drawing goalie masks. I was like, oh, wouldn't this be cool on your... So I got on. A, my brother's there. B, I've got this amazing logo to put on my helmet, <laughs> and it's a it's a pretty progressive uh, up, upcoming department kind of thing, right? So all big rewards. And it has even more meaning now that it's the department that you work for, for sure. Not just borrowing the the design of the demon. No, because you had a family connection. It's even more personal. Yeah, and it was always that. If I'm gonna do anything in terms of a piece of equipment, it was always the notoriety of having a hockey goalie helmet professionally airbrushed and it was like yeah i'm here i'm actually making some money and i'm gonna do this because <laughs> otherwise it's all full of pockmarks right so because <laughs> that's how you save most of the goals right <laughs> <laughs> but how amazing that that logo stood out amongst a sea of patches sure you were somehow gravitated towards that one yeah and it was all of those synergies and i believe good better and different that there are different synergies out there, and I've seen that in my own personal life. That things link back; they're there, and you can recall those. So it's pretty neat. You were a bit of a dark cloud when you first got on. <sighs> yeah, I think so. I I would say so. There was there's a fair number of fires, VSAs, car accidents, and lots of stuff going on, and you you really reflect back and go, "Man, is this this is every day? Like this is this is a lot." VCs at the time saw that was happening and another fellow in my uh, recruit class wasn't getting the same call volume so we did a did a switch out but it was a really good first little bit it didn't matter what i did even at our own station i was getting calls and then i did a couple shift changes right away and i go there and 
get hammered with wires as well. And they're like, holy, <laughs> thanks for coming, but don't come back. Kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and before you switched out, uh, you had a bit of a funny call with Marty. I did. I did. Yes. He's senior guy on the, on the job and he was just moved in for that shift, but I was new and young and wanted to know everything about everything. So it was, you know, a call at one in the morning. I was on the other truck and he went and came back and I was like, what, what's the call? And we're whispering to each other. He said, it's just a medical, go back to bed. <laughs> like, Turn your brain off like, enough, right? Kind of thing. So pretty funny. And then I ended up working a fair chunk with him and learning a lot about the job with him as well. So I always respected, same thing as volunteer. I always respected the older members that have been there for a while because you could really gravitate and they could show you the littlest things that make your life that much easier and even when I got got moved out of that station to switch with the other recruit in my class that was a way older crew uh, than me but I just kind of melded in did my thing learned and just listened to every little thing that they said so you were saying there was a 16 year gap between you and the youngest guy on that crew yeah and he was my rookie (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so they were even older than that so it, that's that's the funny part about it he was my rookie at 16 years difference kind of thing so but it's all good and I learned so much from those other uh, senior guys as well and you, you just took that with you and know that you can pass that on to to so many people around you we've talked about this a little bit about the change in the face of our department when we got on there was a few rookies but uh, most of the department was senior yeah so you stood out uh, and over the past five to ten years the face has changed where it's almost like the majority is under eight years yeah for sure that's good and bad too mm-hmm. um if you know it doesn't matter who's with you if you're surrounded by great people they're senior rookie uh, and they're engaged you're good to go in my eyes you know I'll take anybody that's ready to do the job so sometimes the the senior member may not be as engaged but in saying that you've got to be aware of what the experience level is like and really make sure that you're dialed in yourself because there's moments when you're thinking back and going man where did all the time go where did 16 and a half years ago because you still I still feel like I'm you know, fresh, right? You're, you still love the job. You're still engaged and energized. And meanwhile, there, everybody's looking up to you. It is a big shift, but that's what the evolution of it all is with a growing department for sure. Yeah. So you couldn't get on to the same department that your dad worked at? Correct. And we had a little bit of the same thing in the city that I work in now, but it was more a shift lineup that we couldn't be on the same shift. So that was you and your brother. Yeah. Right. But, but <laughs> one, one summer night we were doing, I was doing a shift change and, uh, the DC said, well, why don't you, why don't you go there? And my brother was acting at the time. And I said, well, are you, are you sure? I double checked with him. He said, yeah, yeah, go, go there. And so I embraced it. It wasn't like there was any ill will or anything like that. It, I thought it was pretty neat. So we did get to do that. And then further to that, when I wrote the promotional exam, he got promoted to our shift and I was an actor on there. So I would see him at calls, not all, all the time, but regularly. And we, you know, we run one, two on a house fire kind of thing. So pretty, 
pretty neat and it wasn't anything super crazy that we ran a unique experience yeah for sure it was it was kind of nice to see them there and we could see what was going on and yeah kind of catch up and see you at christmas (laughs) yeah it's something that shouldn't be squashed i mean i remember when um there's a family of like an uncle and three brothers right and they they made a point before you know the uncle retired that they actually managed to get two of the brothers and the uncle in the same truck yeah to run some calls right it's a it's a pretty special thing and i and i understand a few of the angles of why they would not want that to happen but yeah heaven forbid of you know, the worst tragedies you know of anybody's career that that would happen to you know a full family that full truck whatever it is yeah. but i definitely yeah you you'll i'll look back on that and remember it and it was, it was pretty neat so have you always been drawn to teams team building yeah teamwork i would say so yeah just with playing sports and growing up in that environment and very competitive in sports playing high level ball baseball and then same with hockey or you really realize how much you have to rely on other people as much as the positions i played were kind of individual in a way as a goaltender as a pitcher you have a lot of control but you also have to have the faith in everybody else that's there so i love that dynamic and i think it's super important with our job uh, nothing more glaring has appeared in front of my face that i think when the team whether it's a sports team or your work team is galvanized and it doesn't always happen it's not everybody's gonna mesh but if everybody's kind of playing to the same song sheet usually things are going to run smoother and doesn't matter if it's a call the day-to-day the, the training if everybody's on the same page we're we're going to be good and we can get through whatever it is because the job throws all sorts of hiccups at you it doesn't doesn't necessarily have to be a call so we've seen that in many right. regards right so no perfect group of people is going to experience no chaos <laughs> yeah good point very good point yes yeah so galvanize, like you said, the the pieces that you can, and then the uh, and then you can focus on the chaos that's going to come. Yeah, and you're going to deal with it better because there's not the inner dialogue that isn't working. If everybody's unique and on their own and not getting along, well, when you have those issues, it's going to magnify itself. When everybody's okay and, and working together, you're totally checked in. You're engaged. Everybody knows what's going on you don't have to live each other's lives by any means and i don't know that we do that necessarily now because everybody's so busy different dynamics and that but when you're hanging out a little bit off the job if you can pull that off that's a big thing but definitely i've seen it before where you know you're not even doing meals together and it's it's not the ideal dynamic for sure when did you decide to get involved in instructing i guess i kind of like looked at live fire in year 11, 12, and kind of went in unsure if, if I wanted to do that and unsure of my own skills, even though I'd been at the busiest hall in the city for 10 years, I had seen my a number of calls and fires, etc. You still had that little bit of doubt in your the back of your head. And I guess your reputation, how you're going to be received. So knowing that, it's how you approach it too, because I'd seen very good instructors and some that were were okay or were sometimes 
argumentative with people and critical. And I thought, you know, I, don't, I really don't want to do that. I just want to impart some knowledge on crews and have a good day and train together and bring that all kind of back. So and you had coaching and training experience outside the job. I did. So it wasn't like you had never taken on that role. It was just in this new arena. Exactly. Yeah. And it was something being an ice hockey coach or, or a goaltender coach, I had had years of doing it. I had years on the job as well, but it's a different dynamic. You're in your own head thinking, I don't know if I can give enough wisdom here kind of thing. So, but yeah, you are right. I I did have that there and having done it and looked at the teaching end of it, I, I really did enjoy it. So, and on the ice, was it adult learning? The team I coached, we were only four or five years apart almost adults they were, yeah they were they were older for sure and then goaltenders it kind of ranged from young to old right but you went on your experience and they had you there for a reason how would you compare the receptiveness and the resistance balance between coaching in a sport and coaching and instructing in the fire service that's a great question probably similar that for the most part I think it all depends on your delivery because it, you can be, you would know yourself and I know myself, you can check somebody out in two seconds and you see it in pro sports where they're not listening to the coach, they're done with you and next thing you know, his job's on the line. So much like a teacher, I had great teachers, some not so great along the way and it depends on their delivery model. So you learn that and you learn what doesn't work and you learn that typically browbeating and pounding down on people they're not going to respond to that you got to let them think things through and i'll do that still now even trying to teach or coach even little kids i know it's different but i'll ask them what do you think like give me your feedback on it and then they've thought the process through and they're giving you the answer that you're going to get to anyway but that now that they can they can process it and make something of it so and now in this generation and the technology we have available to us, we can't snow anybody even if you wanted to. I can fact check you, fact check what you're telling me moments after you say it. Yes. Yeah. So you have to really know your stuff. You do, and you're not going to know everything either. Right. And it speaks a lot to being humble as well. Your integrity is the main core of what you're going to do, and that respect is created from that but also being humble and saying, you know what, I don't know. I'll get you the answer to that. And you can walk away and, and find the answer. And they'll they'll respect that as well. But if you come across like you know everything, it's not going to last very long. Yeah, I think one of the greatest compliments you can get um, is for guys to say, well, it's this guy doing the teaching, so it's going to be good. Right. Yeah. So they already come in with that mentality, and then you're just building on the momentum. Yeah. Yeah, you know you're going to have a great day then. Right. Yeah. But it takes a while to build it up because a lot of people have had a lot of horrible experiences. Yes. So they assume that it's just going to be more of the same. You're very right on that one as so well. <laughs> it's, but I think it's easy to be refreshing for people. True. Like you said, in the first few minutes, they can tell this is not like what I've experienced before. And you can see they're a bit taken aback by it and then pleased with it. Yeah. Let's open this up. Have a great day. We're going to engage. And then everybody gets something out of that for sure. Did it impact you to see the gap between what we think we're capable of and the reality of where our skills are? Yeah, for sure. And as again, as much as do 
run a ton of calls and uh, you think you've got it all figured out and then you you see where you know your training is or or what you need work on i think the biggest eye opener there would have been when i went from the crew i was with for 10 years into a whole nother shift a whole nother station and you go oh my goodness now we're here and i thought everything was good or i thought the whole department was on the same page and you go out and act and you're like woof we need to work on a couple of things here and including yourself. So yeah, it doesn't speak any more volume of us needing to train when you get out of your own little shell and, and go have a look at what everybody else is doing. So Yeah. So juxtapose for me, how much guys in the job may practice their sports and how much they practice their job. <laughs> Do you notice a difference teaching in both areas? Yeah, potentially, but, Again, if that same desire is there to be a great athlete or to get on the fire service, you need to keep carrying that through, right? As a recruit, you would jump over a mountain to get the job. So keep that going and keep yourself engaged. And and our uh, senior members could look at that too. Like, don't lose the flame if you can. Mm. Keep Keep yourself involved with it. And because the job has changed so much, yeah, we still run calls, et cetera, but there's lots of different nuances with it, the the different protocols that we have. So you, you've, it's forever changing, and you have to acknowledge and engage that. But guys, I think, in general, shoot a lot more pucks and practice the basics mm. on the ice than they do practicing the basics P- with their job. Potentially, yeah. And, yeah, that, that there's no no clear time that back to the basics is key all the time, right? Just do the main things over and over again and then it won't be a surprise when you're going anywhere you've got it down yeah i'm interested to know if you had the same experience with say classifications been a lot of talk over the years about because there's so many classifications to be done because of nfpa um, limitations that uh, we can't always do live burns for people going through the classifications so it's usually smoking out a building and using red flashing lights <laughs> and one of the common things that I would hear or be told is that uh, people would dismiss it and saying, well, we don't even do live fire for our classification. So it doesn't mean anything yet. And, and as important as the end use of your skills is with live burns. So with sports, you start with the basics. You don't get people playing full games when they're first learning how to skate. Right. You have to build people up. And I'm sure you could quickly tell whether someone's in a real game or not. If they're just skating around cones, whether they're a good player or they're not. <laughs> True. So I tried to frame it for people sometimes that if the smoked out building and the red flashing lights is so easy, why isn't everyone crushing it and getting 100%? <laughs> True. Why are people crap in the bed right. with smoke and flashing lights? If you can't thrive and bring your A game with smoke and flashing lights and no stress and no pressure, then how are you in any chance in hell going to thrive under a real call? Yeah. And I don't think for anything that, you know, the real deal, we, we don't even get enough of that, the real firefighting end of it, right? The real fire training. So to take that away or or think to do it any way differently. um, Yeah. I, I just, I wouldn't agree with that. Like it was all, 
it was all you could give for those first three years of classifications and that's what you focused on and that was a big big day and it was a full day and it was full paces full everything full skills and you were proving yourself if you came back with a subpar mark or you didn't pass something it was a huge reflection on your crew it was a huge reflection on your effort and those things again talking about team and and i guess that's some of the officers i came with like those were the big deals and it it was a big deal if if you didn't do well on that so you prepared and brought everything you took to practice to the game so for us to downplay that in any way i i think it would be detrimental for sure yeah because how, how can you run if you haven't walked first yeah <laughs> there's a good analogy so c is a progression right yes yeah and then really focus on dialing it all into the full deal which is where we're at with live fire now we, we spent the past five years with a long play game building up the basics yeah with the culmination this year of full-blown scenarios letting crews just run it amalgamate all the things they've learned yeah seeing how much of it that they've practiced over the years right and kept tuned in and what they need to get back and focus on i think people now going through that experience really appreciate it with nothing on the docket of we're teaching you this specific technique this year right you have to run the scenario this way so it's now become as close as possible to the real deal the real mccoy yeah and the accountability is on them because everything has been offered to them in pieces and built up level for level. Right. Uh, you did driving instruction as well. I did. It was a good time. <laughs> <laughs> Same thing um, as live fire. There wasn't a ton of people putting up their hand, and I was ar already instructing and sitting in the right seat. So I thought I wasn't full-time as an officer, but I, I could act and go station to station if someone needed it and sign people off accordingly i didn't have credentials or background per se but i thought i was an all right apparatus operator and uh, and i was the one that put my hand up yeah some really good calls and moments and people that can handle an apparatus and some where it was like whew. <laughs> but you have that you know senior guys as well it doesn't matter i did enjoy that and i did see a good similarity there that it's not a bad thing if an acting officer had that skill or sign off or potential to because you're there anyways you're sitting right beside them and you're navigating for them so you're going to do that in your job anyhow i know it couldn't be tailored as such uh, for our driving instructors but um i saw it as that and i took every opportunity to to treat it as such so i wasn't afraid to put somebody up there even if they you know, wanted to learn, drive back to McCall, whatever it was, I was totally open for it. And I hope anybody that had sat with me or sits with me now sees that I'm relatively calm in the front seat and don't scream and holler because I've had that as a driver and it doesn't go well. No, it doesn't. <laughs> no, if you're not a good driver and someone's screaming at you, it gets worse. Yeah. <laughs> Even if you're a good driver and someone's screaming at you, it's hard to keep being a good driver. That's right, yeah. Yeah, so I think the driving instruction is a good example of how we don't necessarily prepare our people to be instructors. I'm sure you would have benefited from going and taking a legitimate fire apparatus driving defensive course. Definitely. And then being mentored on how to teach that skill. Graduating level for level like we just talked about 
into that role. Absolutely. And as an officer, you see how much you rely. And I remember other actors saying the same thing to me because, I, again, I thought it was okay. I knew our area. I knew where I had to go and could handle the truck just fine. And they were comforted by having a decent driver with them. So on the other end of it, if you're the instructor and you have someone new, you know that they know the basics and what do they know? Should they have gone through a course? Should there be a d- defensive driving? Are you going to get in an accident, um, et cetera, et cetera. So I could see the need. And I think other departments take this a little differently in terms of our approach that they second their driver after a certain classification for a couple weeks, one of pumping, one of defensive driving, and then they put them back in the rotation for three months of just driving. So that kind of makes sense to me that they've learned the job for the first few years of their classifications. Now they're ready to take on the role of an apparatus operator and it all moves on from there. And then myself as an instructor, if they give me any of those sorts of things or I'm involved in any of that capacity, at least I'm up to speed too and and can impart everything that was given to me as well. Not just, hey, you're a good driver. Why don't you sign some people off? Right. <laughs> It should almost be seen from the worst case scenario of an inquest oh, and played backwards. For so sure. It's, and then it can be a bit maddening. We've discussed this before about what the focus and priorities are of a department mm-hmm. where you know you have to do WIMIS every single year and you have to check this box and have this course under your belt corporately. Yeah. Yet um, when it all came down to if they pulled your training records, you were never certified as a driving instructor. <laughs> you just put your hand up because you decide to throw yourself into it and do the best you could. And yet in the accident, you would probably be held responsible and have to speak to why, you know, the person that you taught didn't know what you taught them. So it cascades all the way back to if you really want to button things up and have everything dotted and crossed, it should start with properly preparing your people. In so many regards, and I remember having, even as an actor, my dad said to me, "You better, you better get a rein on it. If uh, if you're going to a station to station and they're not towing the line, and driving was one of them, there's been instances where they got into real trouble, and the guy was driving like that all day, and nobody said a word. So if I can give any advice to an actor, go in there and." treat it real deal and if the guy guy girl whoever is driving erratically then get a rein on it and switch your drivers out or whatever it is because they're in control of four lives in there and whoever else they're going in to oncoming traffic whatever it is so you really got to treat it seriously I, I do believe that for sure and on the and look the other way too with the big picture of requesting from the administration that they properly train you before you start doing this work <laughs> yeah yep Otherwise, they're not going to have any driving instructors. Right. Right. I mean, this this accountability should go both ways. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. And then now you know that everybody's up to speed. They've got all the checks in place and they're where they need to be. Yeah. If we're going to be official about things, let's be official about it. <laughs> not just pick and choose what we <laughs> want to be official about, right? And disregard the other things. Touche. <laughs> Uh, so currently you're also uh, an R2MR instructor, so that's the Road to Mental Readiness. It's a mental health education program. I, I would highly recommend that people look into it for their departments. Yeah, It's been beneficial for us as part of what we do as peer support, but you got drawn into peer support as well. 
<laughs> yeah. Thanks. So how did how did that happen? <laughs> thanks to you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you and I were having a conversation. You probably didn't even know you were doing it. So yeah, I was just kind of vicariously unloading on you the back of Station Twelve, and I've had it happen numerous times now that I'm on the team. I wasn't on the team at the time, and then that kind of piqued my interest. You handle things like you normally do really well and uh so i was like hmm that could be that could be okay and i wasn't sure you know add another thing to the list that you want to get involved in right so mm. i wasn't sure what my efforts could be and now that i'm into it and you you know the training's more and then you're in, now you're an r2mr instructor and i've seen that pay off many fold there that training and our team and you know i've had to use it my own experiences which is good and bad right so on and off the job yeah on and off the job um such a bonus and a good tool to have for me and i'm i'm proud to be a part of that team for sure mm -hmm. so you also mentioned you had a terrible call as a volunteer and yeah that sort of resonated with you to get involved in this as well and that's I, that was kind of what i was vicariously unloading on you that day i was about i was the back of the station um new on as a volunteer to the point where I just got my pager or whatever have you. And m my mom had left our house and was driving the same way, same direction as this call was. So the call came in like seven minutes after she left for an accident. And I was like, holy cow, this is the real deal. It could be my mom. It wasn't, but it was a brutal accident. Nonetheless, a lawn maintenance truck turned in front of um, another vehicle the other vehicle had three people in it, um, a mother and two young kids. We got there, there was carnage everywhere. I drove my own vehicle because it was closer to there than the hall. I always thought I could make the truck, but it was the furthest away, so it was never, <laughs> it wasn't gonna happen. But I went there to render help and there was another volunteer that was close to, so we were both dealing with the call and dealing with the little girl. Air ambulance had to come, the whole bit. And I remember our district chief at the time the dust had all settled and we were packing up and I was like, holy wow, that was that was a big deal. And he says, everybody all right? And he was old school. And he said, everybody okay here? Like that was, that was a big call. That was overwhelming. And he had seen tons. And he said, if you guys want to talk about anything? And I was like, gosh, I, I think I'm okay. But the call stuck with me and it's still, I can still play it back. I'm fine with it, but... Mm -hmm. Thinking back and knowing what I know now, that would have been, you know, more than just a roadside debriefing or, or post-incident. So I saw that in my scope, and that's part of your makeup too, all the calls and the things you see. So it helps when you're talking to your own members or dealing with things, and you can see the benefit of having that peer team there because you've, you've got other people to rely on, and you can just talk about the call and make sure that everybody's okay and the, and the process that we have and checking in with people and I, I think it's it's fantastic right so there's a couple things to address there i think um your your drive to that call right and what you were dealing with so even though the reality of getting there and realizing it wasn't your family member it wasn't your mom you still experienced that stress and that worry those thoughts during the drive there. Oh. So even though the reality of what it turned out to be was not that, you can't dismiss that experience. 
it was yeah it was brutal so you're way up and then a little leveled off and then you roll into an actual mess mess so mess. yeah it didn't dial right down to oh it's just a fender bender no so you experience that you get there with the relief and then you're immediately back into a hot call yeah yeah way so way big call that's a lot to deal with <laughs> yeah. um, at 22 <laughs> i think it also speaks to how great it was that there even was a mention from your captain to hey does anybody want to talk about that and the acknowledgement that it was bad it was huge yeah and that, that many just, years back yeah a long time ago for, for sure you were talking yeah. 16 and a half 17 years ago right mm -hmm. so it was a was a big deal yeah so there was something there yep so how's the experience been for you being a peer support member how's it open your eyes what has it taught you do you find it equally fulfilling and draining yeah there yeah there yeah there's moments when it's when it's tiresome but it's just tiresome based on where you're at in your life and your day-to-day -day. can you take on more can you do the check-in calls can you do the things that you need to do to really give your 100 percent to people because you do vicariously get it too from other experiences and maybe i've got too much on my plate as it is doing WSAB, et cetera, as well, but you're dealing with members on a regular basis. So I have felt so many rewards out of it too, where we've done a check-in call, everything's been okay, and you ended up just chewing the fat with whoever and you catch up with them on the phone and, and things are good and you move on. So you do I, you do feel that reward out of it. But yeah, you, you know that you're there for, for the membership and you're doing a solid service for them. Um, it has opened my eyes that even through my own experiences that it is needed and the work will not stop because the calls are happening every single day and you see the list of check-in calls all the time. It's a busy city, it's busy calls, it's busy everything. It's 473 plus members to deal with. So just to clarify for people too, so there was always this, what I believe to be a gap between expecting people to phone us that they were having troubles and reach out to us you know, sort of horse whispering them and making a formal debrief, which is what they call it, or diffusing, or we call it post-incident discussion now because you diffuse bombs and it just seems off. It's really just a talk, right? And I think people are really surprised after we do a talk of how genuinely human it is. But there was this gap between making things automatic and waiting for them to come to us and then thinking about how you don't even process what you've been through for at least 24 to 72 hours, that fact. So the way we bridged that gap was to one-on-one -on -one phone people off duty and just in general say, you know, I realize you had a rough call last shift. Just want to check in with you and see how you're doing. It's that simple. And for the most part, it's, yeah, I'm doing great. And even if they're not, if they're lying to you, then at least they know you cared and you called. And there's been a few instances for, I think for each of us where there has been something Yes. It, it opens up into a discussion. So if we would ever try and do a check-in while they're still on shift or even a couple of shifts later, call the station, people aren't likely to want to talk about it. And it may, it's probably not the best opportunity to talk to people while they're catching a cold call while they're at the station and on the station phone. So when you're off duty and you get it on your personal cell, right, it's a little bit, you've got a little bit more freedom to be yourself and be stepped away from it. So you're more likely to open up. Yeah, and they, depending on the dynamic of the crew as well, they may be reserved that they don't want to speak with others around, or they, there's lots of places in a station to go to have those those calls. But I find the value is, yeah, you're at home, you're relaxed, making the call, 
and they are too they're not on edge and the the tones go off to another another incident and you're you're just doing that you're doing a care a check-in call and and most of the time it is a great catch-up but that lays that that framework skating around the pylons to doing it on a regular basis right you can infancy show them through the process now they understand the process and they're more apt to reuse the process it's there they know it's not a critique it's not anything more than a conversation and you can extend other services that are needed to them and it's paying off dividends i think personally i do yeah so even though it's post-incident for these check-in calls it's also preventative because they're learning that that exists the connections are being built the peer support members that are newer that maybe wouldn't be comfortable running a post-incident discussion with a group get their feet wet in a way of just reaching out and realizing it's just genuine human connection and looking out for each other so for people that may want to detract from it and there would be some reasons why people would think well why would you want to phone and remind someone of bad call that they had but for the overwhelmingly amount of positivity we've received from it and I think what it's contributed to the shift of the department I no part of me would think that we need to stop doing it well and it's so much different than yeah you're bringing up those calls again but I have um, non-fire friends off the job and they they're sitting there waiting for you to unload and tell them about have you done this have you done that and those aren't the venues. I don't want to dig up all the calls that I've gone through for your entertainment. It's a different approach. Way different. And for us, we're we're dealing with it. We're processing it. And we're having genuine conversations to make sure we're okay. I'm not telling you the funny graphic story about whatever we did. or. And we're not asking for details. We're not I, asking. I literally just want to acknowledge you had a rough call. How are you doing? Can I do anything for you? Here's what's available. Yeah. You don't even need to touch it if you don't want. Yeah. But you can if you want to. Yeah. So it's 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 in your court on your terms as opposed to being at the dinner party where what's the worst call you've ever been to? They've handed Thanks you the microphone. That. Yeah. <laughs> Vicariously, we want to know what you've done and how bad it was and we're going to make Because make, in reality, it, it may have happened two shifts ago. Uh-huh. It was it was a couple shifts ago, right? <laughs> where where the most <laughs> recent one was. It's not always they think maybe they're asking you that you did something 10 years ago. Oh, I was biting my tongue. It was not long ago I was biting my tongue. And you had this exact experience. Brutal, yeah, brutal call. And they're, and like, I'm not even going to entertain it. And we just, I just let it go. I was, I didn't get into it. Deflect and. Yeah, yeah. Right. Just change the subject. But you truly know you're, you're dealing with it or could be dealing, dealing with it at that moment. Speaking of uh, NBCs. So you worked on a squad for 11 out of the 16 years? Yeah, privilege of uh, headquarters and other two stations that uh, both had squads there. Great experience, love that end of it. Yeah, I do do miss that part of it. I, I really enjoyed um, having a squad. But And you were lucky to have one of our best yeah. captains over the years mentor you. Yeah, they've almost, a, I think he was, the department um shift or the department instructor for extrication mm-hmm. um so like everything else it kind of went under his wing got involved in the extrication team on a on an outside basis uh, you know was, wasn't one of the main core guys but i got involved in a few events went with him and did you have some trepidation of getting involved in some sort of team and competition at that level of years on and you were encouraged to do it yeah anyways? he he 
he said, I'm doing it anyway, so just just come out. And so I was like, okay. <laughs> Opportunity knocks. <laughs> yeah, I, I, you just look at it, and it's, why why wouldn't I, right? You get more chances to cut cars apart. I'm hanging out with, with him. He's a wealth of knowledge, and then you get to go to these other events and see more there. So, yeah, I didn't have a long affiliation with the team per se, but I got a ton out of it. I always knew that he was involved with training everybody department-wide, so every opportunity we got to build on our skills and go with them and learn more and practice. That was kind of what you did. Right. Mm. So, it so was, he influenced you as a firefighter as a instructor. Yep. And would you say as a captain now that you've taken some things from him? For sure. For sure. Mm. There's yeah. And we, <laughs> him and I have had those conversations and yeah, he'd say, you know, he may not like everything I do, but if you can take a couple things away or take a couple things away from every person that you've worked with, then that's how you're going to be. And I try and live that way too. So I've seen how he'd approach things and the conversations about difficult work-related stuff, etc. So I do respect him a ton and it was a big deal. And, and I'm glad that I had the chance to work with him for sure. Right. Yeah. He was pretty matter-of-fact guy. I'm going to call things like you saw it. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Which is a good thing. Yeah. There, Not being shoots, afraid to. Shoots from the hip. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, so you and your brother are both captains now. Yeah. Were you given any advice or support from your dad and your brother to make the leap? Uh, was it a decision all on your own? How did that go? With the captain I was just speaking about, I knew I wanted to get into the role. There wasn't any waffling. I knew that I was going to challenge the exam, et cetera. And, and Mike was doing the same. So seeing that and, and going that avenue, I knew it was going to be a part of it. I didn't, and my captain didn't go any higher than that role as well. And I respected that too. I saw his pros and cons about moving up and, you know, his involvement and working with the team and the training and all those things. So I genuinely like that. He found his niche and his love and just went with it. Yeah, yeah. So that's there's something to be said about that for sure. Advice wise, go back to what my dad had said: is your integrity and who you are, and be true to yourself, because guys will test you, and you could see it as an actor. Guys would, you know, pull little things off, and you just call a spade a spade and and run the station the way it should be run and. Do the training and do the day-to-day like the officer would. Not just substitute teacher. <laughs> that was pretty much the word, right? You're not the substitute teacher. You're there to do the job. and You don't get substitute calls that day. Right. <laughs> so treat it, you know, it's the real deal. So if any advice I could give to any new actor or anybody thinking of the role, that was something that stuck with me for sure. I don't know, maybe people that have crossed my path and like my approach or they do or whatever have you, but I was just as true and honest as I could be and try and run the best day and the best shift that you could. We're not just mailing it in here. Those all resonated with me and I you try and carry that forward doing the same thing. So getting back to not necessarily preparing our people the proper way in the absence of a an officer development program <laughs> and truly leveling people up skill by skill and mentoring and easing them into the role right it's very much uh literally thrown into the fire (laughs) and learning as you go so what were you doing obviously your captain was preparing you long before you challenged the exam yeah Uh, were you doing anything else were there 
books you were reading? Were there any videos that you were watching? Like, how are you preparing yourself in the absence of the preparation that you should have been offered by your department? Yeah. So I guess, um, and a couple of people I'd ask along the way, you know, what did you do now that you're this, that, or the other captain chief or whatnot? And so there was lots of discussion about books on leadership, that sort of thing. So I would prepare myself there and I kind of gravitate to those books anyways. I like to know someone's past, someone's journey, as well as doing mentoring. You think you've got it all figured out. You've got, you've run, you know, lots of calls, busy station. And I had a truckload of calls after the exam was done the first writing so the exam was done in say may and i knew i was leaving in september uh, i knew i was going to another shift and we just had call after call so the dark cloud came back and then the first day i go to act in the new year and i'm at the tr hall with one truck so <laughs> i've got three personnel there and we've got probably one of the bigger responsibilities on the job Five extra disciplines. Sure. Low volume. Yeah. High danger. High danger. Just to frame this for people then. So there's a pumper or an engine yep. there with four. Um, and then there's an aerial or a ladder with at least three, sometimes four. Um, and then when a tech rescue call comes in, the pumper crew drops back to the TR truck and the aerial crew would come. So you would be going with seven minimum, maybe eight people. <laughs> On a really great day, you'd have more and on a really, really great day, they would all be TR trained. <laughs> but Touché again. that is because we're a department where everybody has to be treated equally in the sense of everybody moves, right. shift changers, however the roster that station just needs to get filled. I mean, I'm not saying that the people that build rosters don't do their best to stack that. And it's gotten better, I think, yeah, ish over the years. But what you're describing is basically you know, improperly staffed in that moment in that day oh, and go time. Big, uh, yeah, huge eye opener. With no full on experience for you, auto X for days. Sure. But now you're dealing with ropes and strong backs. <laughs> it's a different animal. It's a good day to not be at work. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so how overwhelming? Well, yeah, it came down to the point where, you know, right away I'm asking what vehicles we're planning on bringing. How do you guys do this? And I, yeah, right. and I didn't really get a strong answer, and I said, you know what, maybe we'll just bring them all. <laughs> we'll deal with it because they've got to bring players from everywhere. To we only had four people, so if it's going to be an extensive call, I've got to draw on. Which those calls are. Yeah. They're I've all extensive. Sure. Yeah. So let's bring all the equipment there, and they'll get me the, the people that are going to be able to handle the equipment, but... That was a that was a huge eye opener. So further to that, I mean, you'd still mentor, etc. But I was, I decided myself that if anything I was going to do, I was going to start going through the company officer program at the fire college. So I did that. I did the ten twenty one one through four and three and four for sure. They're administrative, but I wanted to see something through all the way through. That's just the nature of who I am. But company officer one and two were a great stepping stone, and it's an NFPA program. So you've got people from all over Ontario that are attending this all different skill levels and experience but you're going through some of the logistics of it of uh, you know making an SOG or or policy etc but the incident command part of it was good and beneficial so I looked at that as as something that I thought was important and it helped 
to give me a little more framework and a little more confidence. And then the more you get out there, you don't have a choice anyways. You're going to start to figure out your routine and, and ease into it a little bit better. But could we use a little bit more and do a little bit more to groom our officers? That's been discussed since the first day I hit the four. So, mm-hmm. yeah, for sure, you need to train and develop your people. It doesn't matter at what level. If you're running a max milk, you got to train and develop the guy that's going to run the store kind of thing. Succession just, planning. Yeah, that's the way it goes. And the people to have this fantasy that, well, I'm going to act and the job's going to ease me into it. Mm. The calls will come when I'm ready. The crew will be great and solid until I settle into my role. That isn't the way that it plays out. Not at and all. And if it does anecdotally once in a while, well, that's great for them. But you were thrown into a role where when you finally were made up, at our hall, so it was initially a one-truck hall. You were brought in a brand-new truck, um, and it's been you, you know, not mentoring under a full-time captain. It's you and as a full-time captain, yeah, first time uh, with an actor under you every day, yep, and uh, a bunch of new players and everyone trying to figure each other out. And I think we've been really blessed to have the people we do. Yep, it's worked out really well, but it was a dice roll. Like it's a lot of, there's a lot of dice rolls, right? Well, I'll reverse back to the first time that I did write and switch shifts. So I left people I was with for 10 years, new shift, new station. Some of the the players I knew, two of the players I knew, a couple I didn't know so well. One of them within the second shift that I was there passed away. So if you think that the job won't find you, that life's going to be rosy and gravy, you're going to go act somewhere else and everything's going to be just fine. You sometimes get dealt a real crap storm. So having said all of that and survived all of that and then built myself back up again, I figured that good, bad, or indifferent, we would be able to weather enough of a storm. Bringing in new players, I had had that experience with a single truck haul when I went down to the place I was at for 10 years, we were a single truck call and had that second crew come in. So I knew that as a firefighter, not as an officer. So I could draw on that experience as well. So I was very fortunate that again, all these little synergies come back. And then we had a bit of a list of people to draw from. And the players that I saw coming to me, I could see that it was going to be fine. It was just a matter of everybody getting to know each other. I thought this is a strong group doesn't matter what anybody else thinks or says or how much you guys know each other. I was uh, happy with everybody that we were getting. So. And you just have a part in in that and helping it grow. It's also incumbent on all of us yes. as grown adults and as professionals and as genuine people to sort of figure out our own level. That's totally true as well. It doesn't all fall on my shoulders for you guys to all get along, but it in the human dynamics of it, it it didn't look like it was going to be a wild ride, right? We were all going to feel each other out and figure it all out. And I think now going through what we've gone through as a crew and developing and, you know, the second truck in place and uh, the ups and downs and the good calls and et cetera, I think we're all thankful that we're all there, right? Do you think it would have been better for you and it would be better for people in general to start acting within their own crew at their station that they've been at for 10 years? Um, and then gravitate outwards as opposed to really when you're acting and throwing on, you're acting on your own shift initially. Yeah. But then you can, you get moved. Most likely you've got a one in four chance of staying on your shift. Yeah. And then if you're lower on the list, you're not acting at the same station a lot in the, you could be 
back when we were on the old shift, you could do in a five days, you could be at five different trucks. Right. And you're getting on the radio thinking, looking at the door, you know, peeking your head at the door and looking down to see what, what truck am I even on right now? <laughs> right. <laughs> Done which that is, once or twice. Which especially plays out in the, in the middle of the night. So you wake up, walk out and go, oh yeah, I'm at 12 tonight and I'm going to get to use 12 on the radio. So there's a lot of extra stresses, I think, that are thrown on people that don't necessarily need to be there when you're trying to literally just figure out how to IC out of bad call. Yeah. And I got a brand new driver and I'm at another station and, 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 right. Right. Yeah, the, I think there's some definite merit to maybe staying within your own station and getting groomed and developed with the people you already know and have those comforts with. You know their strengths anyways. You're not trying to navigate that shift to shift. That's a big thing in itself. You know you know who can drive, who can't. You kind of have an idea of the area. That alone is such a comfort zone. And they know you. They know your integrity. They know how you've been leading up to that moment. You can have conversations with them over days and weeks for them to see that you're just trying. Yep. You don't, have to, you don't have to reconvince another group of people. That's right. Let's work through this together, mm -hmm. run the calls together, just like we've already been doing anyways. You just have somebody else up in the front seat. So, I d yeah, I do believe there's some merit to that, to the whatever you want to do, if you want to call it the lieutenant you know, or an acting lieutenant or whatever it is. And then they, they jump in, they know the cadence, they know the training that needs to get done. They know the, the day to day. So there's no surprises there when you're going out on your own. It's like, Ooh, this isn't good. <laughs> there's a lot of fingers crossed sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, and for it, all of us, it really plays a moment in your head when you're consistently acting and you're going station to station and you kind of, as you got higher up, you got to, pick a little bit more where you wanted to go but you're going different places all the time and you're knowing you got to deal with a different truck or a different area or more high rise or whatever so that's a psychological it's not like the firefighter that's coming in there and they've been doing that same routine for five or six years you're coming into a whole different scope every single time so that plays physically and mentally a bit of a toll on each individual right you're so far out of your comfort zone and as much as every firefighter should have their own professionalism and their own accountability and what they're capable of doing given the setup that we have it's almost even more important that every individual keeps themselves spot on yes because you can't be assured when you show up at a hall that you know you can lean on the team because you don't even know them don't. at that <laughs> level so <laughs> if everybody at least shows up being accountable for themselves, then like you said, things will galvanize quicker. And we've put some of the procedures in place to allow the officer a little bit more cadence out of fire. You've got your SRDs, etc. Fighting fires and running calls as a department as opposed to right. you know, C shift station ten does it this way. Yes. So it doesn't matter who's in the front calling the calls, calling the quarterback plays you should be able to get the similar result out of it because yeah. you know what so and we're still working towards it and we are definitely so it's slowly getting there and i think just like peer support and culture shift we're seeing it get there yeah you just got to keep championing and the yeah. persistence and perseverance right yeah and the patience <laughs> for sure has the logistical end of things surprised you what your day might be like and what your days are actually like yeah you know to say it's frustrating but you roll with the punches and don't make a big deal of it but there's so much that you have in your head that you want to get accomplished. But we've got 
a lot of other things pulling at us. The priority to me is let's get back to the basics. Let's get back to firefighting. It's hard because you're a sunshineless public employee and they want you out there. And then that's part of the gig too. I totally understand that. But when your day is full from wire to wire, it's sometimes challenging to get other things done. And you deal with it, you do. But I think we could have a real look at ourselves and what we're doing as a service and how we're delivering things and and get that up to speed first and then the other stuff can fall into place yeah and you mentioned the rollout of the technology mm. with minimal training too how are you finding that oh that's awesome because i'm not <laughs> <laughs> i'm not uh the best techie guy if you will i, I can hack through anything but all this stuff that's coming our way back to training it doesn't matter if it's driver training if it's host deployment whatever it is roll it out accordingly and we'll get it we'll put it into place train us and it's good to go but the minute anything comes out half-ass it just gets shot down because guys don't have any faith in it it's like or patience or time or patience or time yeah. yeah and the drive to you know see the city as a whole and every employee as a whole team is nice it's yeah, important on some levels, but just as much as forestry is their own animal, we are our own animal, and not everything that's brought out to a general population and treating everyone the same works. A hundred percent. We have different needs. We do in a different day, and we need to focus on those because it is so much more different than everywhere else. And I, yeah, I get that. We, you know, we sat in and in on that speech yesterday with. With the city side of things, it was awesome. It was really good, but these people are from all over. And if I got up and gave my story as to what's important on a day-to-day, it, it's the team unity. And I listened to a whole bunch of other people, and I wasn't even in there. And there's scope of thought. And all I want to do is bring our team together and function accordingly and train together and work hard together. And I'm not saying it could have just been happenstance with the people that spoke up, but it's such a different look right even though it is the city that everybody's there it's it's a whole different uh way they're operating so just to summarize a little bit before we move on newer captain you've got a new team wsib which we're going to touch on also benevolent committee we'll talk about that as well and then uh we lost a crew member this year right on top of everything else a really well-loved yep icon i think friend colleague on all those levels you know you stepping up as a leader Early on to our, our new crew, so you stepping up within the station, and then you know you stepped up huge uh, and spoke at the funeral. So while you're grieving and mourning the loss yourself, and you're also a peer supporter, <laughs> we talk about having all these responsibilities and expectations on us, and also the responsibilities and expectations we have on ourselves, and then we're in it, and we couldn't be closer to it. You know, and I acknowledged us losing Thu uh, in one of the intros, one of the other podcasts, and I'd like to eventually do one that's solely focused on amalgamating all the stories. Yeah. I don't know if I'm ready to do that yet. <laughs> this is sort of first delving into discussing it. You know, even ask how that experience was for you. I mean, I know because we were together. Yeah. Um, but it's been a brutal year, that <laughs> to put it, to understate it. Yeah, we could reset 2018 would be a good one. It would be a good one. Yeah. That was a really 
bonding experience for us as a crew. I think things shifted yeah. hard. It did, yeah. And, and are still shifting. Going through that before with the loss of the other crew again was all I could do to to draw on everything my former officer did and how he handled it. And I'm thankful for for you, for our own group, because uh, even though we were in it, we you know we stuck together the best we could. They definitely don't put that one in the exam book to speak at the funeral, and that was something I never in my wildest dreams thought I would would have to do. Was at another funeral, and and it already had happened. Um, but in my own scope, I thought, well, mm-hmm. that's probably not going to happen to me. But it always happens at other departments, other stations, other sure. crews. Yeah, sure. I've seen it. I've been to so many other funerals with the Honor Guard. And Which I've, we'll get to, yeah. Yeah, and I've, I've heard, you know, different people from all scopes, from police, from fire, from... And so, yeah, for, for me to be up there and, and um, pay tribute to him and, it w- yeah. <laughs> and to see each of us on the team hour to hour, day to day, shift to shift. Yeah. Navigate our way into what this new world looks like. Yeah. And have our own moments and try and be there for each other and try to give each other space and still run calls. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so many so many tough moments there. Even back to getting the phone call and then having to call all of you guys like again, no, nothing that I'd ever wish on my worst enemy uh, but we we did it we got through it that's the importance again of having the team and making sure that everybody's somewhat galvanized or somewhat on the same page you're going to come together pretty quick there whether you like it or not do you think a group of people that are thinking of getting into this role would benefit from a sitting down in a lecture about this about how to how this went how this has gone for you in the past like do you filling people in on how complex this will be and you can't prepare people for everything you can train them and level them up and then burn some hay in pallets then the reality is going to be their experience and we and we survive as a team but i think there's something to be said about speaking this truth about how that experience went and people could you know have a glimpse behind the curtain and get a little closer to being better prepared for if it's ever going to happen to them yeah, and because I, I was overwhelmed, we were all overwhelmed. We all we all were for sure. Whether or not we made the changes as a department or not, that's still you know work in progress and how things are handled. And but I'm more than happy to share it. And it's just that knowledge is power. You're trying to yeah prepare people for the crummy situations that that can happen with the service, right? Because it's not that you just lost Bob from accounting you've lost someone that's really part of your team your family you know uh, you know more about them and where you may not have that close of a relationship right it's a different repercussion yeah for sure so you spoke of us being a different (laughs) different animal within the city well that that's it that's the nail on the head is it down yeah yeah Yeah. so you mentioned you've been a part of numerous funerals as an honor guard member Mm -hmm. when did you get involved in that what drew you to that you seem to see a lot of things and, and say yes to things <laughs> and do it well, I got to say. Oh, I so, appreciate it. Thank um, you. So when did that come into your life and your career? Yeah, I like the marching right out of recruit class. Which not a lot of people do. <laughs> no, I know. And Jordan was, uh, I think uh, he came right out of recruit class onto the honor guard, but he had a bit of a military background. 
I looked up to that as well. I was like, well, if he can do it, maybe I can too. So it took a bit of time. I expressed my interest, but I would start going out to practices. And it just was that moment in your life where you were finally had the time of the day to go out and, and be a part of that. And then you started going to some events. And so I think it was like 2007 or eight, somewhere in that neighborhood. So I was a part of a lot of great things right off the bat with our honor guard. And we were going heavy into hosting the Canadian fallen firefighters in Ottawa. And that is a big scope in itself. We haven't had this conversation, which is surprising because we've talked about everything else. <laughs> if you went to that or not. And so the year before you host, you basically shadow the other department around and they show you, you know, from getting people at the airport, from doing dinners, handing out helmets, etc. So you see it all and then now you're doing it. Mm-hmm. So you're prepared. Yeah, I went up on that trip. Did you? Yeah. Okay. So you know logistically what From the that, outside looking in, yes. Of course. So it probably looked okay. I hope it did. It looked amazing. Sure it did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, we've been there for, you know, five days yeah. kind of thing. Calm on the surface, paddle like hell underneath, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so you're a part of some pretty big events and you're new to it and you take on a lot as well. Not only are you, you know, doing an event like that, you're uh, doing parades, which is amazing. Or you're doing graduations. Those, those are amazing as well, but you're doing a lot of funerals. So within your department and outside of your department. Yeah. So I've been, I had taken on a lot and went to a bunch and that was all good. And then we had, you know, a string there for seven or eight months where we lost five members kind of thing, retired and active. We were all reeling from it as an honor guard, and I can recall those moments, and it was like, holy man, we're just holding it together here. And and peer support on top of that. Yeah. So Yeah, that got thrown into there as well. So you so. jumped in with two feet into this and dedicate yourself like you do with the things you do. and Yeah. It takes a toll. It does, and I've had to kind of step back a little just out of sheer busyness more than anything, not that I don't want to to jump in anymore but and, and i will um but you know you've got three kids at home and it's not like you're a not involved kind of guy right yeah so there's only so much time and energy that you can put and devote to continually drive down to do stuff so it's a pretty awesome thing to be a part of and uh and i will get get back to it but it does play a mental game on you for so many different reasons and you go to a police funeral where they've got little kids there and you have little kids too and it's like oh my gosh you just you're barely holding it together right but you do what you do to serve your department and pay your respects in that regard too so and you realize pretty quickly and i think other people need to acknowledge as well that for us paying our respects and walking up the line and then going off to have a coffee and chat with people is different than standing there on guard doing it for (laughs) minutes hours at a time and the lead up, the visitation, the funeral, the whole, yeah, it, there's a lot to it. There's a lot to it. As much as you're rotating around, your mind is in it Yeah. on a professional level Yeah. to pay respect in a whole other realm Yeah. than we are just as friends and colleagues coming up. And the rewarding part of it is listening to the feedback when someone says, boy, you guys look pretty good up there. <laughs> You do, you're, yeah, you're in the worst scenario, but you, you looked professional and right. you're represented that way, right? right. So, yeah. And you know you did, you know, your brother or sister, right? Yeah. So you also understand the loss of our members from a union side of things with the Benevolent Committee. Yeah. So talk to me about that. <laughs> 
benevolent um, committee in, in terms of what we do association-wise is, you know, you're looking after those beneficiaries or potentially handing money over. It's usually from the president to the surviving spouse. So you may have dealt with them anyways if it was a related illness or not, and then you see it all the way through right to the end of it. So whether I was there representing as an honor guard or not, it's played a long roll out too, right? Some of our members, it was eight, nine months. You knew where it was going to go and it wasn't getting any better. And then you're finally dealing with the end of it. So yeah, it's a smaller role. And it was my initial introduction to the association. Um, so many years back, 12 years back, whatever length of time I've been there, somewhere in that range. But then it's moved into the WSIB side of it. And that's a way more significant role. So that has its mental pound down on you as well. It's a lot. It's heavy. I've talked to lots of other members that have been in that role, and it's, it's got a bit of a lifespan too because it is heavy. We talked about how looking back at our own experiences sort of prepares us to help others. Mm-hmm. Um, and we talked last night, just touching on this briefly, what we were going to cover, how we both experienced injuries earlier on in our careers. Yes. You were a year on. I was two years on. And the overwhelming thought of, I just got here and this might end what I've fought so hard to get. And we talked about maybe some of the missteps that we made and how we could have, you know, partially to our own detriment of just being proud and also not wanting to be off the trucks and part of it out of ignorance of not knowing the system well and maybe not paying attention as much as we should have to the that initially WSIB talk that happened in recruit class because we just wanted to put out some fires. <laughs> um, but we didn't necessarily navigate it ideally. So how did you handle it when you got injured? And then how did you learn from that? What can we talk about right now that would help people navigate their experience better and help us help them, help you help them, and how can they help themselves? Talk to me about some of the frustrations and missteps that you had and that you're experiencing with being in that role now. My own experience being on a year and a bit and then going to a major, major fire, one of the bigger ones in the city where 24 homes went down and I wrecked my back lugging a 65 around in the mud but I didn't know and you know started shuffling after it was like oof something's wrong with my lower back here and way better now and you just you know learn a lot and take care of it etc but um came in the next shift yeah try and limp yourself in and it's like oh man you shouldn't, you know, I should have just addressed it right then and there. It was a... Your captain noticed it, right? My officer noticed it because I was struggling to even put my gear on. And he's like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> right. <laughs> well, there's a lot wrong with me right now. So, right. Um, but we ended up doing the paperwork and I was off for three and a half months type thing. But coming back on light duties and the administration side of things, because that's what we had. Mm-hmm. Um, now we've... Um, and not anything for my credit, but for members before me, we've evolved so much in terms of how we're handling members in their cases on modified duties. They can come back on shift and all these amazing things. So Whereas before you were put on straight days. You were on straight days. And you they found upstairs. a yeah. work, make work project for you. Yep. So it was a way different animal. But a lot of self-doubt happens. I just had this conversation with one of our members too. It's almost a peer talk because they were hurt or are hurt and they're questioning am i going to be better and i walked them right through the same path i said look this happened x amount of years ago and this is kind of how i 
remedied it and you will get better. You'll, you'll be okay. Like it's going to take time, but you will be better. I know where you are. You're in a dark spot because you don't think the job will ever not be there. And then you get hurt and you're now you're doubting if you, you can even do it again. But three months or a year out of 30 years right, is a drop in the bucket Yeah, if you do it right. Right. But you and I and many others rush back in. Or try to. And <laughs> exacerbate it, lengthen it. Yeah. And it's different when it's work-related versus not. A little bit in terms of the paperwork that's coming in. But mark those events fill out the injury reports accordingly and now, as soon as possible yeah asap and we have something to draw on at that point in time as opposed to backpedaling and trying to catch up afterwards because it's not so much the city that's going to cause gray hairs it's wsib they're an insurance company so whether they approve or deny is is all dated to the injury itself right so and you think a lot of the reluctance for people to dive into the system is they're afraid of the system they don't want to deal with the the stalwart. <laughs> yeah, or they don't want to up the apple cart. They don't want to be seen as weak or whatever it is. And then those delays just cause headaches, and it doesn't get anybody any further ahead. So mm -hmm. mark the event, mark what happened, seek medical attention. All those things are checked and in place, and the rest will, whether you get better you know, the next shift or who knows, it takes months if you got whatever you could get an infection for all you know you don't know it doesn't have to be a, a strain or sprain or whatever it is it could just be a simple infection and you could be out for four or five months you don't know so those are important things and try and lean on myself or any other association executive for the advice because that's what we're there for that's what you know you're ultimately paying us for and none of us mind doing anything we'll do whatever it takes to help facilitate those returns right to highlight the fact that you can't separate the mental impact from the physical impact. We've done post-incident discussions with crews and we've heard word for word that, well, I was just going to take some time off and then eventually speak up about this where it's luckily we caught that in time and we were able to get someone on the right path early on because backpedaling, even though they had the best of intentions, it just makes life so much more difficult for them and for you yeah there's your way of thinking about it and there's the way that we should probably go about it <laughs> so <laughs> whatever you've got crafted up in your mind as to how you want to get back whether it's you know physical or mental injury let's just have a conversation about what's going on here and get the right things in place because it just saves a lot of headache down the way so it's tough because you have to release a lot of yeah. control yeah and put a lot of trust in someone that you just yeah handle your case and yep. trust that they've got your best interest at heart and yep. is going to work with you, speak for you, be an advocate for you. Yeah. But getting that person to the right care mentally or physically and getting them back to work a hundred percent, that's the payoff. Mental health being such a front runner in it right now. If our members are, are struggling or suffering and they can come back and have lived that journey uh, of treatment, et cetera, and they're back to a full capacity, that speaks volumes. And sometimes, you know, that experience brings them back better than they were before they got hurt. For sure. Yeah. All of a sudden they realize how they have to take better care of their body and their mind. Yeah. And they're really dialed into the job more so than they ever were. Physically, mentally, they're maybe they're a better employee, and you hope that that's ultimately what you hope.
you just hope the best of your whole membership. I'm not sure who it's attributed to, but a quote I read recently said, if you don't take care of your body, where are you going to live? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there you go. It's going to be 30 years. Takes a little piece of you from day one to day 30 or 35 and don't think differently that it, it won't. You're there to serve people. So physically, you know, it can break you down. Mentally, it can break you down. But live that journey and you're part of a great service and be proud of that. But you got to take care of A number one for sure and both those regards. So to build on that uh, before we finish up, what would your advice be to those that are A, trying to get on the job, to rookies that just got on, to the 10-year, to the 20-year, seeing your own path and now seeing others? If you could just give me some thoughts along those benchmarks. Yeah, so again, I've, I've um, tried to mentor some guys around me um, in regards to trying to, to get on the job. And it's just been, don't give up. It's worth that, the difficult road to get here, and that'll eventually pay off. But that's within their own person. I can't, I can't make them do courses or whatever it is. They've got to have the desire to do it. As a rookie, gravitate to the, the senior firefighter and learn everything you can. It does matter about the chores, et cetera, but it matters about the job. You know, you're not going to learn all of the job in the first month or two. You may be thrown a few wild cards right away, but those things, uh, that creates you, and that makes you realize that you need your skills there, and they need to be sharp, and you need to be training and learning and, and have those ears open all the time to learn every little idiosyncrasy about the job that you possibly can. Well, humility is the key factor there. <clears throat> it still is. It still is for me, right? I'm, I'm trying to be humble. I'm not perfect at my own role, but I certainly try and give 110 every day. The actors, I think we've spoken about, don't think that because you've written an exam that you're going in to have all the answers and that every call is going to be you know, super smooth and it's good to be humble. It's good to learn and, and still learn and don't be afraid to reach out to somebody that has some more years on and maybe they, you can draw off of their experience and how they might do something different. So having that open mind and being humble is huge. For the senior firefighter, um, you know, well, you know what it's like. The years go by so quickly and the job is forever changing and you've got to bring that to the table and bring that spark and you definitely do and, and, and our crew does too and I'm thankful for that because it's those people that are surrounding me that allow me to do my job without having to micromanage everybody else, right? That's a huge thing and it should be a good attribute to a, to a senior firefighter but it's not always the case. I know the job can wear you down but if it's time for a change and refresh your career then do that because there's a lot to give back and I think that's the most important part. And what about those thinking moving up into uh, a district chief, platoon chief, admin positions? Still stay true to your values no matter what it is. Because you've come from usually a captain's position in some regard, I guess a manager in some regard, look to try and take care of the people that you looked after anyways and just broaden the scope. You're going to look after a, a shift or a platoon or a, a district or whatever it is. Still have that best interest in mind I think there can be a lot to be delivered in terms of their knowledge and how they see things and their approach and training and doing incident command and that sort of thing they can give a lot back in that regard too so I think those are important 
to me, you're always giving back. You're always training and passing on the knowledge that those years have provided you. So be true to that. And can we do better at putting our egos aside and holding ourselves and other people accountable? We can certainly try. <laughs> yeah. you know, sometimes something as simple as we've talked about it. We're the crew before with really no reason. Truck's a disaster. Yeah. We wouldn't have left it like that. Sure. Uh, and then there's always this sort of pause like, well, should we say anything? We don't want to ruffle feathers. And Right. Whereas we would hope that someone would say something to us. You would. Yeah. So I think we need to get better at that. It would keep everybody in line a little bit. On a professional level. Right. Without people taking it personally. Right. If we don't hold each other accountable, then no one's going to get any better. Yeah. You can look at it in the corporate role too. If you had a company vehicle and you were passing it over day to day and the guy brings it back and the tires are flat, well, you'd probably want to say something to him. Right. <laughs> or at least ask why. Right. And figure it out. You ran over a speed belt, did you? Yeah. <laughs> Well, it's been great talking. I appreciate it. I think that went a little bit smoother than you thought. I'm humbled to be here. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone worries about it, and then once we get into it, it's great. No, I I really do appreciate it. Cool. All right. I appreciate you being here. All right. Talk to you soon.